Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. And I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. So Sherry, I'm super excited because one of my heroes is joining us today. It was about 12 years ago, and I was right in the midst of, as you know, Sherry, a super painful divorce. I mean, I guess, is there any other kind? And I signed up for a workshop at Esalon here in Northern California in Big Sur and met Sean Korn for the very first time. I felt really, really broken at the time, and I was sort of grasping for anything that might bring me back home to myself. Well, you and I both had heard of Sean before because we did our teacher training probably just a few years before that. And we've seen her many yoga journal covers and other articles, et cetera. This is my first opportunity to meet with Sean in person. Can I just say it's not an exaggeration to say there's nothing quite like a Sean Korn yoga class. And Sherry, I know you've had the opportunity to have one there in Raleigh as well. But I'd say it's mostly because yoga class doesn't quite do it justice. Sean's classes are part prayer, part sweat fest, a lot of call to action for ourselves and others. And Sean's teachings are more like what I imagine a Bible revival might be like. Often when Sean is speaking, it's as if she gets out of her own way and simply lets spirit and messages flow through her. And it's really an amazing thing to watch. That workshop actually led me on my path back to healing myself and made me curious to know more about this tiny woman and her huge mane of hair. Luckily, Sean has written an amazing book, Revolution of the Soul, and has many in-person and online offerings. So I get to dip back into Sean's world every now and then. We'll have more info and links about Sean in the show notes, but for now, I want to shut up and I'd rather hear from Sean herself. So Sean, welcome. And thank you so much for joining us. I want to thank you both so much. And I really appreciated that intro. It always makes me blush a little bit when I hear people describe their experience of my teaching, because as you said, there is a sense I feel it in my own body of getting out of my own way and something else kind of comes through. And in that classroom experience, I'm way more present, bold, expressed, dynamic, in charge, confident. And so when I hear myself describe, there's a little shy part in me that's just like, oh, did I do that? (laughs) You did that. You do that all the time. (laughs) Yeah. So I really appreciate that reflection. Teaching is the way that I express my love to this world. And it is the call to action that I take as often as I possibly can to support people in waking up to their true potential and their purpose. And in that environment, it allows me to be my most authentic self. And so I'm immensely grateful to the the opportunity to teach and to anybody who's ever shared that experience with me and has taken class with me. I'm incredibly grateful to them too, because without the students, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. That is so beautiful. Well, we'd love to hear a little bit more about where all this started. I mean, we have experienced your courses. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have as well, but you had a lot of travel and a lot of journey uh, to get to where you are now. So I'd love to just hear a little bit about that journey and what brought you to this moment. You know, it's funny that I was thinking about that just this morning, I was organizing something on my altar and just moving stuff around. And my altar is just filled with years and years, decades worth of items that have been given to me, passed down to me by other teachers, by students. And as I was just kind of arranging it and cleaning things up, I thought to myself, I've been doing this a really long time, that this is no longer a hobby 
back in the day, I remember being told that this was a phase. My spiritual practice was a phase that I was going through. And I would realize like, man, this has been decades and this is a part of my life. And I know what these items mean. And I know the symbolism and I know the intention behind them. And I know what they're meant to serve. And it blows my mind that yoga and spirituality is a part of the fabric of my soul for so long that I barely remember a time when it wasn't because I've been doing this now since I was 18 reluctantly. And then by the time I hit around 25, 26, it had burrowed its way into my cells and became who I was and who I continue to grow into. So going back, I guess the part that's probably the most relatable is that I was not born into a family of spiritualists where I had access to mystical information or even transcendent ideas about life, love, and experience. I grew up in New Jersey in a family that was half Catholic, half Jewish. And my parents, who were very young when they had us, decided to raise us with no religion at all. We celebrated every holiday that gave a gift, but it was very much the void of any kind of spirituality. I would say that my parents were agnostic at best, my father erring more towards atheism. We were really just given the message of like, take it for what it's worth. Unfortunately, though, I was a very intuitive, super sensitive young person who picked up information very readily and took it all very literally. And so in my school that was predominantly Catholic Christian, I would hear about this entity called God that everyone seemed terrified about. God, I was told, showed up when you messed up, when you were bad. There was this entity that was all-knowing, ever-present, absolutely all-powerful, and in control over your life and your destiny. And if you didn't behave in a certain way, then you could get punished. And that punishment could come up in all different kinds of forms. And as a result of that, and layered on top of the trauma that I had as a kid, I grew very paranoid spiritually. I was afraid of this thing called God. Unfortunately, within my family, I wasn't being taught any differently. It was just a non-conversation. So I was left to my own devices and I became superstitious. So as a young kid, I had developed obsessive compulsive disorder based on my childhood trauma, which happened when I was around six years old. And in my trauma, for me to feel safe in my body, I needed to feel balanced and in control. That means I got obsessed with the numbers fours and eights. I had to be touched a certain amount of time, blink a certain amount of times, swallow. If someone touched me on one side, they needed to touch me on the other side. Because if I didn't have that feeling of balance, my nervous system would get very overwhelmed. So creating control became very important to me. When I started to discover that there was this God thing that was punishing, I developed superstitions around it, which linked to my obsessive compulsive disorder, which meant that unless I did things in a certain order, I could somehow prevent myself from being jinxed in bad things happening, like people I love dying. That seemed to be the big thing. 
if I did things in a certain way, a certain pattern, then God wouldn't kill my mother or God wouldn't kill my father. And do you think that fear of dying thing was, did that stem from something or was that just part of sort of the OCD and and the trauma that you experienced as a youngster? I think it stemmed from somewhere. My mom, when I was around six, had a very serious kidney infection that caused her to be hospitalized for about a month. All of a sudden, my mother was there and then she was gone. My mom often says this is probably the catalyst of so much attachment disorder that I had as a kid because they didn't tell us that my mom was in the hospital. She was just gone. They didn't tell us that she was coming back. And we were taken out of our home and we were brought to other friends' parents' homes during that time while my mom was in the hospital because my father had to work. And I was so young, I couldn't have really comprehended what was happening. I just know that my mother was there and then she wasn't and no one was talking about it. So I only could presume that my mom was dead. So when my mom came out of the hospital, of course, it was a complete relief. But after that, I wouldn't go to school. I would sleep in her bed at night or on the floor. I got very attached. I'd have to leave school in the middle of the day. I would pretend I was sick so that they, someone would have to come get me so I could be with my mother. And so I do think that there was a correlation between this idea of God taking away someone I love because within my tiny little psyche, I experienced it and I never wanted it to happen again. I wouldn't have known any of this as, as a kid. I didn't understand OCD. I didn't, I just knew that if I did certain things, I felt better. My nervous system felt better. I felt more in control, but I knew it was somehow related to this God thing. Well, and if I could just jump in with a comment really quick, I'm just thinking about what an unbelievable burden of responsibility you're carrying around as a small child, that if you don't do these things, something terrible is going to happen to the people you love. Well, actually, it's a funny story because what's not funny, but I do come from a family that finds humor, even in the most incomprehensible, devastating experiences. So I often do find these things kind of funny and ironic. My grandfather was dying. He was not well. He wasn't dying that day. So I thought, but I called. And at this point, I don't remember when my grandfather died, but I had to be around uh, 19, maybe. And everyone was aware of my, these compulsive behaviors that I had. And one of them had to do with saying, I love you. You had to say, I love you to me four times. And it was very important. If it didn't happen four times, it had to happen. Like it had to be said. I had to say it. They had to say it. So I call my uh, grandmother. I'm on the phone with her. I say, can I talk to grandpa? And he gets on the phone and we're just chatting away. And I say something to my grandfather and he says, oh, well, hold on a second. And he gives the phone back to my grandmother. He misunderstood what I said, you know, and for whatever reason, he gave my grandmother the phone. So I talked to my grandmother for a few moments and I say to her, I got to go, but let me talk to grandpa because I didn't say this to her, but I hadn't said I love you. So she says, oh, he's sleeping right now. I don't want to bother him. I felt my body clamp up. I, I felt it tense. But at that point, I have a few more skills. I've been in, th now I'm in therapy. I'm working with the obsessive compulsive behavior. I'm, I'm practicing yoga. So I track my body. I can feel the anxiety. I ground and I'm like, oh, it's okay. I'll just call back later. My grandfather died. 
my grandfather died. And so it became this ongoing joke. My brothers were like, you killed grandpa. Oh, no, no, Sean. (laughs) I killed grandpa. I knew it. I had the power all along. After that, it became this ongoing thing in my family where at the end of every call, they'd be like, I love you. (laughs) I don't want to (laughs) die. So I did become aware later on that energetically, emotionally, it really was a burden for a young person to take that on. I played God because I didn't know what God was. And this entity felt bad and I needed to do whatever I could to protect the people in my world. And so, yeah, I'm aware of that now. I know I wasn't aware of it then, but I often think of the empathy and the intensity of my little self and how I was like, making sure everyone in my family lived. So there you are, you're because of your trauma, because of the things you've been through, you're starting to develop these habits and patterns. Eventually sounds like maybe diagnosed as OCD, but you know, you have a lot of time before you find yoga. So during that time, how are you growing? How are you developing? And then how did you eventually find yoga? Yeah. I, you know, it's, I had a fabulous childhood with rich experiences tons of friends, did all the normal things that young people do. Fooled around, drank, just did the things. And I had a lot of anxiety behind the scenes that a lot of people weren't really present to or aware of. Like both lived side by side. It didn't really impact my relationships or my ability to function in life. And I did struggle. And when I experienced trauma, the sensation of that trauma was such that the only thing that soothed me was this thing that I called patterning. As I got older, I was able to find other tools for self-soothing. And that included alcohol, drugs, sex, all sorts of behavior that I adopted on top of (laughs) obsessive compulsive disorder. And I think it was when I moved away from home right after I graduated high school to New York City. And it was during this time that I got a job at a place down on the Lower East Side or the East Village on 10th and Avenue B called Life Cafe, which was owned by a man named David Life. And his partner worked there, Sharon Gannon. They would go on to open up the Jiva Mukti yoga centers that exist today as a style of yoga. But that is where just destiny stepped in at a very early age. You were like a waitress. You weren't seeking spirituality. You weren't seeking some sort of enlightenment. You were seeking to pay the rent is what it sounds like. Yeah. It was a cool restaurant near my house that was funky that would probably take someone like me that was underage and with no skills. And they did. And it was there that, not right away, but I was very conscious of David, especially, you know, he was in his thirties. He was probably the most together adult in my immediate life. Like he would have been the person that if I got arrested or was in the hospital and I needed someone very physically close by to me to come help, David probably would have been the person on my emergency contact list. That's how I viewed him at that time as very, very solid, but kind of weird and out there. Sharon as well, you know, creative and 
sexy, open, curious. There was just something so confident about the two of them. You know, and at 17, I was anything but confident, you know. It was in that restaurant that I started to pick up little tidbits about yoga here and there, about the practice. I remember when they went to India. I remember when the menu started to change from being like a typical menu with hamburgers to vegetarian and then vegan. And why? There was just different moments where I was cultivating life lessons that Sharon and or David would sit with me and talk to me in a different way than I'd ever been spoken to before, really inviting me into inquiry rather than like blaming or judging or presuming. They asked questions and that really intrigued me. I'm so struck by this happenstance, if you will. One of the things Anne and I talk about a lot on the podcast, we call them the sliding door moments. You know, if you step through this door, your life completely is different than if you step through this door over here. And what you're describing is all the seeds of not just who you've become, but what you have put out into the world and all the people that you have impacted can clearly be traced back to that moment of you stepping through that door. Believe me, it's something that I I think about and I am continually so grateful for. But there were three things that happened during, I would say, between 17 and 20 that really pushed me into a trajectory of where I am today. The second one was therapy. I decided to take the money that I was earning at this restaurant and get a therapist. I knew that the obsessive compulsive behaviors were getting worse, not better. I was very good at hiding them, but I was also noticing an increase in anxiety And I had more access to drugs and alcohol at that time because of where I worked. And I thought, if I don't figure out what this is in my body and find some tools for healing, I think I know the direction this is going to go in. I was watching it. This is in the 80s in New York City. I was watching people die of drug overdoses, get addicted. It was all in front of me. People who led very relatively normal lives like myself just going down a pathway that they couldn't dig themselves out of. And I could feel myself magnetized to that. It's exciting. It felt good. I wanted to feel good. It made me feel different. It eased the overwhelm until, of course, the next day or when I came down. So I got into therapy with a man by the name of Norman Friedman, who's dead now. But in that process, he's the one who told me about trauma. He helped me to understand that what had happened to me as a six-year-old, and this is not my mom, and I've been very public about this, so I have no issue in talking about it. I certainly talked about it in my book enough, but I experienced childhood sexual abuse and exploitation at six years old. But I came from a family where you can talk about it. It wasn't a secret. It was something that was discussed. It was something dealt with. And so because of that, When my therapist suggested that the trauma that I experienced at six was actually trauma, I was like, no, it's not. That wasn't traumatic. You know, it was dealt with. I'm fine. And when he defined what trauma was, anything that overwhelms your capacity to cope and leaves you feeling helpless, hopeless, out of control, or unable to respond, paraphrasing what he probably said to me, but whatever it was, it rang true in my body. And all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, I experienced trauma. I've been, I I was traumatized. And then he also helped me to understand 
that the mind and the body are connected and that my obsessive compulsive disorder wasn't a mental imbalance. It was an emotional response to the trauma that I experienced. It was a survival mechanism to help me to feel safe in a body that was unsafe. That was life-changing to me when he started to make that connection between the sensation in my body, trauma in my brain, and the clever ways in which I've been anesthetizing myself. But I don't actually have to feel the rage that this body felt and hadn't been given permission to express. And is that what you mean when you say that body that was unsafe, that you didn't trust this rage that was inside? Is that what you mean? Well, there are so many ways that I didn't trust my body as a child. My body was highly sexualized as a six-year-old. And I didn't understand sex or sexuality at that age. And yet I knew that there was something that this body had that, in my case, it was men, men wanted. And as a result of that, I wasn't safe in this body. And the way to get safe was patterning. It was a sensation that helped me to breathe. Literally, I would exhale when I would start to pattern and I would feel more in control of my body. It would keep me from dissociating in some ways. It's just amazing what a little tiny mind will figure out. Yeah, how you created coping strategies, whether or not they served you later in the moment, it strikes me that it's the only way your little six-year-old, eight-year-old, 10-year-old body could figure out how to cope. And so interesting that breathing was just inherently a part of it, that as you you would inhale and exhale on each of these pattern steps. Yep. But I'll also say, tell you though, that became again, destiny, you know, kind of crossing that path into my trauma. I write about this in the book, but there's a moment in New York where I'm now taking a yoga class. I'm working with a therapist. I just start doing yoga. Yoga is very physical for me. It's not spiritual at all. I have no relationship with God. I'm not interested in it. I just like the way that yoga makes my body feel. It seems to ground me. I'm in a class and the teacher accidentally kicks one of my feet while I'm in downward dog. And I could feel the panic come up in my body because now I'm out of balance and I need to figure out how I can get the teacher to touch my other foot. Now, this has been going on my whole life of finding very intricate, subtle, discreet ways of bumping into people, tripping over people to get this sensation and alignment. So I'm thinking about how when I leave and I go to hug him goodbye, I can then hit his foot with my other foot. As I'm thinking this, the teacher says the words that absolutely transformed my life. Breathe and everything changes. And this came out of nowhere, but I heard it. Breathe and everything changes. So I took a really deep breath. I exhaled, nothing changed. I took another deep breath, exhaled. The anxiety got worse. I could, could feel my heartbeat. I could feel my skin get red. I could feel like the tingling that I was used to. And I don't know if it was the third breath, the fifth breath, the 10th breath, but there was a breath that the anxiety decreased, that my heart rate slowed down, that the sensation and the equilibrium within my body seemed to regulate. And I managed to leave the studio without tripping over the teacher, without having to do the thing. And I thought, oh my God, what was that? How did that work? What happened then is that Every time I would find that impulse, like I would always have to count the stairs when I would leave my apartment, there was 56 stairs and I'd have to count the stairs and then count them go up four times and check my doorknob. And 
I get to the bottom of the steps. I turn around to go back up and I stop and I sit on the bottom of the stairs and I breathe and breathe and breathe. It took a while because I knew I could just change this anxiety by just doing the patterns, but it was a sensation. It opened and I was able to leave the apartment building without having to replicate those patterns. So breathe and everything changes became a really big mantra for me. And though, as the work continued going forward, breathing also became my nemesis because as I got deeper into the mind-body connection, understanding the ways in which emotions live within the cells and how these emotions need to be expressed Otherwise, they continue to perpetuate the anxiety, the stress, the the dis-ease. Breathing made me feel emotions. And I had to learn how to not just breathe to regulate my nervous system, but to extend the exhale. There seemed to be something within the exhale that would really trigger me. And it was in that exhale that I began to actually feel the grief. To make it circular, when I was molested at six, I held my breath. I held my breath and I dissociated. Breathing, deep, deep breathing, somehow in the bottom of that exhale, felt like I was going to die. So not breathing was safer than the deep breathing. So you can see how it's all connected. Trauma, the mind-body connection, the patterning, the inability to breathe, getting into therapy, learning how to breathe. That breath was actually going to be the medicine. The thing that was the poison now is going to be the medicine. Also, the sound of breathing is something that I associate with the person who had molested me because that's what I could hear was the resonance of the breath. And so Being in therapy helped me to articulate the big feelings. Yoga helped me to embody it, to assimilate it. Therapy helped me to communicate about it because the shadow in yoga at that time, big feelings come up, detach. We were being taught to detach from our big feelings. What my therapist taught me was Detachment without awareness is dissociation. It's a safe feeling. Like I know that feeling. The feeling I don't know is the outrage. My little six-year-old body never got to scream, never got to cry, never got to finish the event. It never got to be safe. So it got stuck in a moment. Yoga and therapy helped my body get unstuck. And as a result, the obsessive compulsive disorders, the patterning, all of that went away. Not to say it went away for good. Every once in a while, something will come up where I'll notice an impulse. When it happens, though, it's just a clue that something is going on emotionally that I need to tend to. So I don't look at it like as a, as a step backwards. It's just a familiar response in my body that's letting me know that I'm potentially in overwhelm and I'm trying to feel better. It's interesting that the thing that used to be the thing that kind of kept you stuck is now the thing that's a little bit of a clue to what's really going on. I find that super, super interesting. 
Yeah. It's all a gift. I have to look at it that way. Life just is. I can't change what happened to me when I was six. I can't change that event and the simultaneous event of my mother going into the hospital. That's just is what it is. But what the practice does, and when I say the practice, it's not just yoga asana, it's therapy. There's many other practices that are included, but they give you the skills to give you the strength to change your perspective. So I can see my experience through a different lens. I can see the wisdom, the things that I learned, all the ways in which I became resilient, not in spite of what happened, but because of it. Doesn't mean I'm grateful for the event. It's like, that sucked. But if I don't find a way to see the gifts in this moment, I stay stuck in that experience and I don't get to move on. And so it required a lot of time. I had to learn how to scream, literally. I had to embody a practice of therapy that taught me how to beat a pillow, that taught me how to physically discharge the energy, to scream, to rage, to not use spiritual language, to make excuses or to bypass what was happening. I had to learn how to say, fuck you and no, and almost in some ways curse the people who did what they did to me, to get it out of my body. And as a result of that, it allowed me to forgive them. It allowed me to see their own trauma and inadequacies and spiritual disconnect that I get to be free. But that did not happen in a vacuum. That happened years and years of therapy, support, resources, and a a deep commitment to not wanting to stay in that story. And so it was Life Cafe, it was therapy, and it was working in a nightclub in New York City called Limelight, where I was introduced to different kinds of people in this world that some people might consider deviants. I worked in a gay sex club and I worked as a bartender. And as a result of meeting these people, especially one in particular, I was able to reclaim what God was to see God as truth and love, to understand that it exists within and that everybody essentially was doing the best they could with what little they knew based on their own trauma and the lack of tools that they had access to, that it wasn't personal, that it was always spiritual, and that my work was to stay on my side of the street and to notice my reaction to someone else's personality or ego or whatever it was. And to see that every person and every experience was ultimately a teacher and here to hold a mirror up to the places within myself that was disconnected from my own light. It was through these three things, being able to develop a physical practice, being able to reinterpret God through a unconventional lens, a non-religious lens and also find a technical, mental, scientific reason for why my brain worked the way that it did and to give language to it, set me on a path that allows me to do what I do today. I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't have the skills that I do had it not been for what happened to me at six and all the ways in which I had to heal empowered me to be able to get out of my own way and share the way that I share in a classroom. Well, there's so much in what you've just said, but I want to comment on two of them. One is you're really speaking to something that is so important and so hard, which is being able to recognize people have their own trauma, 
people are doing the best they can in that moment while absolutely in no way, shape, or form making it okay. That I just think is one of the hardest things in life to do, to hold both of those things. And that's really connected, I think, to the other comment that I was so struck by that you've been talking about. So much of your path to getting to where you've gotten was cultivating the ability to stay with this abject terror, to keep breathing, even though breathing actually made it worse in the short term, and to keep doing these practices, even though it would have been so much easier and so much less scary and so much more comfortable not to, as dysfunctional as that may have been, but it would have been the easier choice. And it's actually a choice that makes more sense because of its familiarity. I know the outcome. I know what happens if I do this. I don't know what happens if I do this. The evidence that I have is that this, whatever this unknown thing is, is probably unsafe. But that's not the truth for me. And that required faith. What I had, which is what I wish for everyone on the path, is I had support. I had mentors in my life. I had teachers. I had a lot of undercover angels. I had a mother who was willing to be present with my vulnerability and with my truth. I didn't come at this because I read about it in a book. I kicked and screamed and resisted and would have people figuratively hold my shoulders and say, you have to trust me on this. Go into the discomfort, go into the pain. I got you. We're not going to let you fall. I didn't do it alone. And that's grace. I don't know how I had that. I don't know what was in my fear at such a young age where I do feel that all these unusual folks descended upon me to say, we got you, kid. We got you. It strikes me that that's a part of it, though, is that we all have angels and mentors and and guides around us all the time. It's just that I think we think they're supposed to be dressed up in a certain way, and you're not going to find it in a gay sex club, right? You think it's going to be the smart person in the front of the classroom or at the top of your company or whatever. And what I love about what you're saying is it's almost like, I'm going to say something that's a little, maybe a little cheesy, but it's almost like looking for the little miracles that are already here around us all of the time. And I think that that is so important. I'll share another story with you because it's to that point. And it's also what really helped me to hone this idea of what God and spirituality is. After I got really steeped into yoga and it started becoming something more emotional for me, and I I went on a quest to find God and studied at any ashram I can get my hands on. Like I was just like, I was in it. But nothing was landing. And I, I came across this teacher, Sri Aurobindo, who was dead, Sri Aurobindo and the mother. And they have an ashram in Pondicherry in India. And I took the pilgrimage out there. It was the mother's birthday. I wanted to be a part of the ashram, see what that vibe was. And if I was living in LA at the time, I was going to leave LA and move there and stay at the ashram. So the day before, I had a really funky experience in another part of India at another spiritual event that was not positive. So I was a little anxious. So I get to the line, if you will, at this ashram. There are hundreds of thousands of people there to pay their respects over the course of weeks. You know, it's packed, but everyone is sitting and meditating quietly. Whereas the day before it was bedlam right away, I was struck like, Oh my God, I could feel it. 
And as I got closer to the Samadhi, that's where the Sri Aurobindo and the mother are buried. That's where the remains are. As I got closer, my meditations are going so deep. My body is like feeling electric. I could feel like this magnetic pull dragging me towards the Samadhi. It's finally my turn. I am on my hands and knees crawling over to the grave and it's covered in flowers, probably a foot deep of marigold and roses. And I put my head down. I'm on Sri Aurobindo's side. My head is down in the flowers and I start to cry. I feel so moved and at peace in this environment. And I start to pray to Sri Aurobindo. Are you my guru? Show me. Do I have to recommit myself to you? Leave LA. Where is God? I want to know God. Is God here now? These are the questions I'm asking. All of a sudden, in that moment, in this ardent prayer, I get this sensation, this burning sensation that hits me right in my third eye. And it's like a zap. It's almost like an electrical zap that hits me here and goes straight down into my core. And I'm aware for a moment that I'm receiving what's called Shaktipat. Shaktipat is a transmission from the guru to the disciple. And I've heard about it. I heard it was ecstasy and pleasurable and cosmic. And that the sensation is electric current. I'm like, oh my God, this is Shaktipat. I'm getting Shaktipat. I'm being called to my guru. But then another part of my brain is saying, ow, this hurts. Like I thought Shaktipat was supposed to be ecstatic. The other part of my brain is like, be present. This happens once in a lifetime. You got to take this in. The other part of my brain is like, fuck, this really hurts. Finally, I come off the grave, off of the flowers, and I grab my third eye and I pull a bee <laughs> out of my head. <laughs> so you can imagine the disappointment I felt. And I just remember looking at this bee and being like, you got to be fucking kidding. <laughs> I toss the bee down, I leave, but it took me a while to realize that I got the answer to my prayer. What I was being shown in that moment is that God is in every single experience. It's in the bite of the bee, in the mundane, it's in the fantastic, it's in the miracles, it's in the death. There's not a single moment that's not divine. I don't have to seek God anywhere. It's already within me. The lessons are within me. The transformation is within me. The insight is within me. I just have to do the work to peel back the layers of illusion, see the attachments that I have to my ego and my image and the roles that I play and my conditioning and the limiting beliefs and begin to mature my perspective. But God was in that bee sting. It was telling me, go the fuck home. <laughs> oh my God, I love that so much. I can't even tell you. Sean, I think we could talk to you all day because I love your stories, but I know we're going to come to a close here in a few minutes. I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience about writing the book and the book and how people can find you. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Writing the book was probably the hardest thing that I've ever had to go through. I am not a natural born writer. I'm a communicator, but I'm not a writer. And it's a very different thing writing a book than it is just to be like riffing ideas. But I went towards it because it's what I teach people. It's the very thing that you're most afraid of is the very thing that's going to give you the medicine that's going to transform your soul. And so I knew that there was a reason that I was resisting. So I needed to write that book. And my mantra was I had to write everything, but I didn't have to publish anything, but I had to write it. 
because writing it became part of the discharging process. It allowed me to, to titrate my nervous system and get comfortable with these ideas being in any way public and up for a discussion. And so it was a very arduous three and a half year process, probably the hardest thing I've ever done and creatively the greatest thing I've ever done. And I'm very, very proud of what I've written. It's honest, it's vulnerable well-researched. There's a lot going on in the book that they can get something out of. And it takes you through a very specific spiritual journey that leads us, everyone, to work towards uncovering our purpose and how we can show up in the world and create inside-out change based on these principles, but principles that are motivated by truth and love. And so people can find me through seancorn.com, best way to be able to uh, find out what I'm up to. And before we get to our final question, I also want to give a shout out to the book and say I listened to the book and my husband who practices yoga as a physical activity, but is absolutely not a yogi, I would play him excerpts of you reading your early experiences in yoga because it was so hilarious. And I actually think it gave him an appreciation for all the experiences people can have with yoga, wherever they are with their practice. And so I personally thank you for that. Well, and let me just add on to say to our listeners, I would both buy the book and listen to the book, both. I know that's buying it twice, but Sean is amazing in the way that she narrates it. I'm re-listening to it right now. First, I thought it was as prep for today, but then just because I love it so damn much. So thank you for that gift, Sean. Actually, recording it was harder than writing the book. Really? <laughs> yes. It was very hard. I Who knew that that was like a brand new skill set, but I'm so glad that I did. I needed to, and it was important for me that it was in my voice and not somebody else's. So it's something that I really stuck to that I had to read my own book. So thank you for listening to it. I appreciate that a lot. At this point in your journey with so much transformation behind you, and I'm sure still transformation to come, but if you could go back in time and have a conversation with little Sean at whatever age, what is one piece of advice that you would give her? You know, I would say that what's just popped into my head, play would be one for sure, like play, but it kind of goes along with this. Some years ago, I had a woman who reads spirit guides, like that, that's what she does, you know, and she, she reads your spirit guides and she read mine. And I apparently have 12 spirit guides. And what the spirit guides wanted to tell her to tell me was what I think is going to happen in this lifetime is not. I'm not the only one who's doing this work and you need to rest. And when I was told this, there wasn't a lot of context to it, but I knew exactly what my spirit guides were telling me. I've always lived with this urgency in my body that there's this message that needs to be put out and everyone needs to hear it now. And it's what drives me, what gets me on a plane. It's what gets me to teach this feeling of urgency that people have to wake up. So the first thing was what I think is going to happen in this lifetime is not going to, that I'm not the only one doing this work, meaning that there are so many light workers out there who are assisting in a variety of different ways, both seen and unseen, and that I need to rest. That hit me so hard because what I was aware in my body that I felt like I was the only one who was doing this and that if I didn't do it, who would? And that to rest would actually be in disservice to what I know my purpose to be. So that would have been the advice I'd give my younger self. Kid, 
whatever you think is going to happen in this lifetime, this is lifetimes. You are a participant. Your message is important, but you are not the end all. And there are so many other people who are part of this. You are a part of a conscious community. And to actually be in service, it needs to be sustainable. And so I would ask my young self to find more balance, to ask for help more, to play more, to embrace other parts of life, not just the spiritual aspect or the work part of it, the teaching, but to value relationships with the same amount of passion. So I have reevaluated my life over the years and have definitely have more balance now. And I also see when I magnetized to behave in old ways and I remind myself, I am not the only one doing this work. What I think is going to happen is not going to happen in this lifetime and it needs to be more sustainable. So that's what I would tell my younger self. Oh, so beautiful. I love that. Well, Sean, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, just what a treat to have, as I said at the beginning, one of my heroes join us. And for our listeners, as Sean mentioned, you can find all of her information at seancorn.com. There's tremendous offerings on there, both paid and not paid. I really, really strongly suggest you pick up her book, Revolution of the Soul. It's a beautiful book. And uh, hey, listen, we're heading into the holiday season. So both Sherry and I want to wish everybody a fantastic holiday. And I think that's going to wrap up our episode for today. We really hope you enjoyed it and would love it if you share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes or post it to your own social media. You can find information and previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. Please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. Mm -hmm.